Good morning. Now normally at the start of a sermon we'd begin with uh, a question perhaps or uh, an anecdote, a story, something to, uh, to intrigue, to inspire, to interest, something as it were to give you a reason to listen. Today I want to start slightly differently. I want to start with a plea, a request. You see today's passage uh, is, is quite a hard one. I mean, in some ways, today's passage is the reason why we preach the way we preach, why we choose parts of the Bible and then just preach through it. Because if you were going to pick and choose, you might well choose to skip this one. It's hard to preach, it's hard to listen, it's hard to hear. It's been a hard week sitting under it for me. And I trust that under God, it's going to be a hard thing for us to hear and to act on together. And so I want to start with a plea, with a request. Today, please listen. Now, I hope you do that every week, right? I mean, in one sense, it's a little bit superfluous, but I think we have to listen intently to today's passage. We have to listen to it humbly. In fact, what I want to ask of you is especially to listen to it with ears for yourself. It's one of those parts of the Bible that is very easy to sit there thinking, oh, yes, so-and-so. They really need this one. I wish they were here to hear it. Now, can I ask you, please, to listen with ears for yourself, to let God do His work in you. Because I tell you what, passage like today, what we really need is God's help. So why don't I pray and ask God for that? Our Heavenly Father, we ask now, as we turn to this teaching of Jesus, that has in it some serious warnings, please put your Spirit into our hearts. Speak to us in ways that we will hear and that we will obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In fact, Jesus has been teaching not even just who's the greatest, but what does it mean to belong to the kingdom of heaven? And today's passage, Jesus says, those who belong to the kingdom of heaven deal rightly when they are sinned against. They deal rightly when they are sinned against. Now, just by way of setting the scene, if you're, if you're a guest, if you're someone who's not a Christian yet, then what I hope you will see today is how God deals with us. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful picture, it's a wonderful picture, and I hope that as you see that, you will hear the invitation to come into this sort of relationship. And for those who are Christians, well, how should we relate Firstly, how do we deal with others when they sin against us? And secondly, in our passage, how do we deal with ourselves when someone sins against us? We need both halves together. If you have just one and not the other, you're going to be left with questions or in a little bit of strife. I thought briefly about splitting this into two sermons and preaching the second half next week, but we need both halves together. So, when we are sinned against... How do we deal, firstly, with the sinner? What do we do with that brother or sister in Christ who has wronged us? Now, Jesus gives us four steps in our passage. We're going to get straight into it. And step one, I think, is crucial because in step one, he shows us not just what to do, but why to do it. Have a look with me again, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, 
you have won your brother. Step one, talk to them. <laughs> talk to them. We've got to get that bit right, don't we? Too easy when we've been wronged to talk to everyone else. Oh, so-and-so, they did this, they did that, they did the other. They've been doing it for so long to go and gossip and spread and... No, in private, go and talk to them. Now, notice we're talking about sin here, okay? We're not talking about annoyance. If they annoy you, go and rebuke them. Well, you know, if they keep kicking the chair at the dinner table, if they keep chewing with their mouth open, if they stack the dishwasher wrong, we're not talking about that. We're talking about sin. They have done something that offends God and they've done it towards you. Step one, go and talk to them. Now, you, you may need support, okay? This is, I don't think this is saying that you may not have anybody else who is aware of the problem. It may well be that the sin against you is so hurtful and harmful that you need somebody with you. That, that's, that's okay, but take somebody who's respectful and respectable. No, what do you do, step one? You go and talk to them. And why? Because if he listens to you, and I think it's fair enough to say he or she, right? This is brothers or sisters, Christians sinning against each other. You have won your brother. You go and you rebuke them. I don't know if the word rebuke helps us perfectly. It, it, rebuke has that sense of go and tell them off, right? Chastise them. Put them in their place for having sinned against you. It doesn't quite capture the attitude we need to have. We want to expose is a better word. We want to convict. We want to convince we want them to recognise their wrongdoing. Of course, it includes a disapproval. I mean, of course, we want them to recognise, right, you've done the wrong thing against me. But they may well be unaware. They might not even realise what they have done to you. The first step is a conversation, and the aim of that conversation is to have them deal rightly with their sin. Before God and with you. We want to win a brother. We want to bring our sister back. We want to restore fellowship. We go with good in our heart towards them. The aim of that first conversation is not vengeance. It's not making ourselves feel good. I'm going to go show them what they did to me. I'm going to make sure that they understand. I'll put them in their place. No, it, it, it's not retribution. It's not venting. We don't go in that regard for our own self. We go for their good. Step one, and, and it's quite an astonishing thing, but step one requires us to approach somebody who has wronged us, genuinely seeking their good. That's a very Christian idea, isn't it? I mean, this, this is what God has done. This is what the Lord Jesus came. He came to meet his enemies seeking their forgiveness, their restoration, their reconciliation, their dealing with sin, their repentance, their good. It's a very Christian idea, but it's a very hard idea, isn't it? I can think of some truly terrible things people have done to each other. Jesus is suggesting that you've got to want good for that person. We'll come to that in our second part. But what do you do if they don't listen? 
No, there's all sorts of ways they might not listen. Maybe they don't acknowledge their sin. They No, I didn't do that. Or no, that's not sinful. Maybe they do acknowledge it, but they won't seek forgiveness. In fact, they just keep right on doing it. They will not listen. What do you do then? Well, Jesus says, you go to step two, verse 16. If they won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. As a normal pattern in the Bible, you, you want witnesses. Right? If you're going to have an accusation of sinful behaviour in particular, you want it to be backed up. But witnesses to what? We had, we had a funny little moment at staff meeting this week where we said, what do you think this verse means? And one person says, well, I think it means that. And the other person says, I think it means that. And we were kind of went, well, hang on a second. You see, do you need witnesses to the sin or do you need witnesses to the conversation? What are these witnesses witnessing? Uh, hands up if you thought it meant witnesses to the sin. I'm just very curious here. Okay, hands up if you thought it meant witnesses to the conversation. And hands up if you haven't put your hands up yet. <laughs> All right, very good. <clears throat> I think, if possible, both. The thing is, there is lots of sin that isn't witnessed. All right, so it's very challenging to bring a witness or two to something that nobody witnessed. That's kind of hard to do. So if you don't have witnesses to the sin, you bring witnesses to the conversation. They are coming to listen to this interaction that's happening between two people to help there be judgment. To bring to bear, particularly upon the sinner, the reality that there is a brother or sister who is saying, you have sinned against me. Now, this doesn't mean bring your buddies to gang up on him so that the rotten scoundrel will start to pay attention. Well, that's not what it means. Again, you think of that heart that wants good for them. Actually, the person that they are most likely to listen to is, again, somebody who's very well respected. Somebody that they esteem, not necessarily one of your buddies who's on your side, but somebody who is able to speak the truth to both of you, such that you might listen. Upright, honest. But if even that doesn't produce the outcome, even with the witnesses present, still the individual will not listen. Jesus says, you go to step three, verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, to these witnesses, well then tell the church. I have never seen this done in a way that didn't cause all sorts of heartache and pain. Unfortunately, I just, because we are all sinners, it's the right thing to do, but it's horrible. There's no real way around it. Notice we're not told how to do it, right? Call a special general meeting with the only subject matter at hand, right? The sin of Johnny, right? Announce it in the announcements slot at church. Put it in the news bulletin. I mean, we're not told what does it mean to bring it, right? Come to parish council and have... Have it in the minutes so that all can see. We're not told how. But the point at each stage is to see the sinner restored. That somehow they will listen. That somehow they will deal with their sin. That somehow they will be saved. But it may well be that they will not listen to that. And so step four, Jesus says... Halfway through verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, 
Let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. That's a really strange sentence. Uh, there's at least three things that are strange to me. The first one is, the you is singular, not plural. We don't have it in English, I mean you and yous, if, you, if you're properly bogan, but we don't, we don't really have that. But the Greek has got the singular and the plural, so Jesus isn't saying, let him be to the church as a Gentile and a tax collector, but to you who have been sinned against as a Gentile and a tax collector. There comes a point in time where if they will not listen to you, you just have to drop it. You have done everything you could. You have pursued every avenue available to you to see this brother or sister in Christ saved from their sin. But you can't make them. You can't force them. You can't coerce them into repentance and restoration. There comes a point in time where you don't pursue it any further. But the second strange thing is you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's a very weird set of words. Why not just say, have nothing to do with them? That would have been a bit simpler. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Gentile and tax collector, it, it was kind of the way that the Jews spoke about the people that they would literally have absolutely nothing to do with. You wouldn't shake their hand. You, you, you do your very best to not have a conversation with them, right? It, just interacting with them would make you unclean. You certainly wouldn't eat with them. You wouldn't have them in your house. You would not have any form of fellowship with them. It's just kind of strange that Jesus uses those words of how you are to treat this brother or sister in Christ who sinned against you. Especially strange, given the third thing that's strange in this passage, which is, what did Jesus do with Gentiles and tax collectors? <laughs> he took the gospel to them, he loved them, he ate with them, he shared with them. So, actually I think maybe that's exactly why Jesus used those words. Because we have to recognise that here is a brother or sister in Christ who we are no longer able to be in fellowship with in, in a real and deep and hurtful and saddening way while at the same time loving them such that we want the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to break their hearts and bring them to repentance. What that looks like, that's every different person in every different circumstance. Right? When, it's, when it's within a family, will look different to when it's within a church, which will look different to when it's neighbours, which will look different to... But the attitude is the same, right? We want good for them. Out of fellowship, so we will treat you as an unbeliever. Now, can I just pause for a moment to, to reiterate a little bit of a warning here? Because we're talking about what happens when you've been sinned against. But I just want to reflect for a moment on what does this mean if you have sinned against somebody else? If a brother or sister should approach you one day and says, excuse me, I, I, you've sinned against me. If that happens, again, I start with my same plea, will you listen to them, please? So that it doesn't have to go through this escalation that tears churches apart. Will you listen to them humbly? You're not perfect. Odds are that you have sinned against them. 
I'm not perfect, Lord, so I have. In fact, we need to, because these kind of weird verses that follow in, in 18, 19, 20 are actually a really stark warning. Have a look again at verse 18. Now let me, I'll read them through and then come back and make a couple of comments. Truly, Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now you read those verses and you think, wow, as long as three of us agree, we can pray for anything and God will do it. Um, so I'm after a couple of people after church who just want to get together and agree that it would be really, really good to have the tree of life grow in our garden. Anyone reckon that would be a good one? Yeah? Well, we'll... Of course it doesn't mean that, right? Of course it doesn't mean you can just pray for whatever. The context really matters. Two or three, what two or three have we just heard of? The witnesses against the person in sin. What is it that he's being bound and loosed in heaven? Well, it's forgiveness and mercy and judgment. It's people's sin before God himself. As we preach the gospel, we are in the business of binding and loosing people from their sins. As we proclaim judgment and as we declare mercy, God in heaven is bringing judgment and mercy. This is how God works in the world and how God works in heaven. If you want a, a full explanation, go back and listen to the sermon from chapter 16. In our work of bringing people to reckon with their sin, heaven is at work. There is a reality that is mirrored such that if we are getting to the point where we are treating somebody as a Gentile and a tax collector because they will not repent of their sin, then I take it these verses are warning us to say that reality is true in heaven. Your brother, your sister are in eternal danger. Such that if somebody comes to you and says, brother, sister, you've sinned against me, please listen. Jesus himself calls on them to face their sin. Jesus is there when two or three are gathered in my name. They are before the judgment seat of the living God. Right, how do we deal with a brother or sister who sins against us? Well, love in action, right? We're so concerned for their good, for their salvation... We want to win a brother or sister. We want them reconciled to God and we want them reconciled to us. How do you do that though? What sort of a person can seek the good of their enemies? Again, if, if I just gave you 15 seconds to think about the worst sort of sin that somebody could commit against you, we'd all leave today depressed. But there are horrible things that people can do to each other. How can you possibly go and seek the good of that person? Well, how do you deal with yourself? Peter, I, I, I still don't quite know how, but he, I think he sees the answer straight away. He sees the reality that the sort of person who can relate wanting good against the person who sinned against them is somebody who is able to forgive. 
He picks up on that and he comes to Jesus to say, well, okay, okay, right, the forgiving person, right, but let's just be clear here, I mean, how much forgiveness are we talking about? Have a look at verse 21. Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven? I think Peter was trying to raise the bar. I think Peter thought he was being clever. <laughs> he was being the godly one. Hey, Jesus, I forgive up to seven times. I mean, everyone else is like maybe two or three, but I'm like, whoo, hoo, hoo. And Jesus goes, ah, little bit more than that Peter a little bit more than that in fact I tell you not as many as seven Jesus replied but 77 times (laughs) and then he illustrates it with a terrifying story it's a simple story it's easy to understand The king wants to collect his debts. He brings his servant in. He says to his servant, pay what you owe. His servant says, please have patience. Have a look at verse 26. The servant fell face down and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. He doesn't even ask for mercy. He just says, give me time. But the king, the master, is so merciful, he had compassion, released him. He forgave him the lie. He said, no, don't worry about it. Now, did you notice how much money the guy forgave him? Doesn't mean anything to us, right? 10,000 talents. Although there's a footnote in my Bible, and I go and look at the footnote, and it says a talent was 20 years worth of wages for a labourer. So the king just forgave this man 20,000 years wages. In Australia, if you are on minimum wage, which as of July becomes $23.23, I believe, if you multiply that by 40 hours a week, 52 weeks of a year, and then you multiply that by 20,000 years, you are just shy of a billion dollars. Which just goes to show how much a billion dollars is. That's 20,000 years wages. I mean, that, that just blew my mind. But that's how much this man's been forgiven. Now, in turn, the servant goes out, goes and finds a man who owes him money, and he begins to choke him and say, pay me back what you owe. The, verse 29, his fellow servant fell down and began pleading him with basically exactly the same words he had just used of the king, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And the man would hear nothing of it. Throw him in jail till he pays me back every cent. Do you know how much money this guy owed? He owed 100 denarii, that's 100 days' wages. You work it out, it's just under 20k. The guy's just been forgiven a billion dollars, the literal billion dollars, and he's out here demanding his 20,000. And then Jesus ends it with this result in verse 31. When the servants saw what had taken place, they were distressed, they went and reported to their master. Verse 32, he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed over him to the jailers to be tortured now. He's no longer just imprisoned, he's now being tortured until he could pay everything that was owed, which of course he will never be able to because none of us can earn 20,000 years wages. And then Jesus concludes 
with one of the most terrifying verses I have ever read. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from the heart. It's terrifying because I know my own heart. I know my own propensity to want to hold a grudge. I know how much I like being on the moral high ground. And this is somebody who's wronged me. <laughs> they are in the wrong, for crying out loud. I like playing in my mind the scenarios where it works out differently and I said the thing that put them in their place or I did the thing that showed them what a rotten scoundrel. They I know my own heart. It's a terrifying verse because I know how much I love to be entitled, to seek justice, to want vengeance. Now, there are two people in our passage today who are in tremendous danger. The unrepentant sinner and the unforgiving sinned against. <laughs> We've got to listen to Jesus. We have to take him seriously. Now, I, I want to share with you a, an article on bitterness. Um, there's copies, uh, some of you grabbed it on the way in, if you haven't, make sure you get one on the way out. It's really helpful, it's a couple of pages long and it's helped me this week tremendously to reflect on my own bitterness. That, that, that feeling that we get when someone sins against us, that's bitterness. Right? We feel guilt when we sin against other people, we feel bitterness when they sin against us. And it so quickly grows from a tiny little thing into a great tree. That sense of being wrong that we latch onto, that, that kind of feels good, but then it festers. Let's be very clear here, bitterness is sin. It's so easy to respond to being sinned against by sinning, by developing this resentment. Did you hear it in Hebrews chapter 12? Just a couple of verses. Let no root of bitterness grow. It might start tiny. A seed grows into a root. It might start hidden, but it will bubble into a tree and it will destroy not just you, but many, is the warning in Hebrews. The antidote that Jesus gives us is forgiveness. Now, there's a very helpful little test in this article as to whether you are carrying bitterness or not. And I, I've added a second one. Here's the first one. The first one is, do you remember all the details of how they wronged you? You see, we have a tendency to play over and over and over again when people sin against us. We have a tendency to fixate on it, to remember it. And as we play it over and over again, we remind ourselves constantly of the details. Whereas to forgive is to let go of that wrong, is to no longer hold it against that person, such that over time it fades. We may well still remember that they wronged us at some point. I, I don't think it's, we're not expecting sort of the memory to disappear, but the details become fuzzy. 
no longer really matters exactly what they said and how they said it and when they said it and what I said and why they didn't do it and what they didn't do. And I'll tell you the second test of whether you are carrying bitterness in your heart is how you speak to others about that person. Now you're going to go, well, let me tell you about so-and-so. It becomes immediately obvious whether what you have in your heart towards them is anger and resentment or love and compassion. It becomes immediately obvious. And can I say, this is an area where we can help each other. Because if I'm listening to somebody talking to me about somebody else and I'm picking up the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, then maybe I can help my brother, maybe I can help my sister and point that out. It sounds to me like there isn't forgiveness. Now, if bitterness is sin, then we have to deal with it as sin. I've spent this week asking God for forgiveness. That's how you deal with sin. Asking God to take my guilt away from my own thoughts and heart. Asking God to change me so that I will not sin in this way. That's how we deal with sin. Now, I'm not victim blaming, okay? I'm not trying to say, well, you're the person who's been sinned against and now it's your fault. And No, no, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is deal with your own sin rightly. Really, I think in our passage, there is only one person who is in danger and that's the unrepentant sinner. If we're holding on to that bitterness and clinging to it, well, we're in just as much danger. Now, if your mind is anything like mine, immediately you start thinking of all the objections to this. Well, hang on, hang on, whoa, whoa. I mean, it, it can't quite be that easy, right, David? It can't quite be that blanket a statement. That you've just got to forgive someone who's sinned against you. I mean, look, David, you, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know the depths of the sin, the amount of time over which they've sinned. You, just, you, don't, you don't know how bad they've treated me. Such that you, you ask me to forgive them? I don't. I, do, I don't know how badly they've sinned against you. I, I've got a little bit of a sense for some of you of your past and it's, it's horrible, but I don't know the depths of the sin. Actually, there is somebody who does. God does. And in fact, he knows the depths of their sin even better than you do. He knows not just their actions, but their thoughts. He knows just what they did do, but also what they didn't do. He knows it all. And he also knows the depths of your sin. The way that you've treated God, the way you've treated others, he, he knows perfectly. And he forgave you. And should they turn in repentance, he will forgive them. That's who's calling you to forgiveness. The God who forgives, the King who was merciful said, well, should you not show mercy as I showed mercy? You can't be a person of mercy and demand law. It doesn't work that way. We say it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come... Forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray it every week. Now, isn't that a scary thought? Because if you are a person who's demanding law of somebody else, who's demanding judgment and justice, to stand before the throne of God and have that demanded of us, Well, well, hang on a second then, David. Does that mean I'm supposed to just let them keep on sinning? Just let them do whatever they want to me. I've, I've got to be a doormat. I've got, to be, I've got to let myself be taken advantage of. Well, of course not. We, we have to have both parts of this talk together. We have to have how do you deal with them when they sin? How do you deal with them? You call them out on their sin. You rebuke them for their sin. You bring witnesses such that they will listen and stop their sin. You bring them before the whole church such that they will repent of their sin. doesn't mean let them keep on going. There are real consequences to sin. It also doesn't mean that you have to kind of just suck it up and be friends and go back as if nothing's ever happened. La, 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 la. We'll just be lovely and get along. No. Sin hurts and damages. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. When we have been wronged against, we are called to forgive, to not hold that hurt against them. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is fixed. Where there is no repentance, there is no reconciliation. And even when there is repentance and reconciliation begins to happen, trust takes a very long time to rebuild. Now, we're not holding it against them. We're not holding their sin against them any longer. But that doesn't mean we are to be fools. I think this is where our forgiveness is slightly different to God's forgiveness. We can't cause repentance in the other person in the way that God can. We can't give of the Holy Spirit to see transformation in the way that God can. We have to continue to be wise. The relationship may never be the same again. But that's different to holding a grudge. But what if they are unrepentant? I mean, how am I supposed to forgive somebody? Maybe they've died. We don't have a chance for them to repent. Maybe they won't even talk to me anymore. Or what if they repented and they keep doing it? Some people I've heard will say, well, I'll forgive when they come and ask. I'll forgive when they come crawling back to me. <laughs> when they've groveled enough. When they've, you know, I've got to have my little bit of fun first. When they've suffered a little bit. When they've died for us. While we were still sinners. Well, isn't that an interesting thought? When did Jesus die for us? 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years before I repented, Jesus had died for me. The relationship wasn't restored. Reconciliation didn't happen until there was repentance and the forgiveness landed and the relationship was... But forgiveness comes first. It's a hard one, isn't it? Who's great in the kingdom of God? Well, the one who sees the little child and having been sinned against extends the mercy and the grace of God. Who wants to see them saved out of their sin? Who wants to bring the word of God to bear such that repentance can happen? But the one who can forgive as they have been forgiven, who can seek the restoration of the sinner. 
Now, I really don't want today to land as a burden, as a weight on your shoulders, as a, as a thing that we have to somehow psych ourselves up to do and, and work ourselves. I, I really don't want it to be that. The, the go and do from today's sermon, more than anything else, is to go and sit at the foot of the cross, is to go and know the Lord Jesus who forgives you. That, that's the go and do. Is to go and be forgiven. To bask in the love and the mercy and the grace of the King who forgives the 10,000 talent debt. To go and have His compassion saturate you. That's the go and do. Be loved. Be forgiven. Receive the grace of our King. Maybe it's go and pray a lot for yourself. If you are bitter, confess it as sin. Ask God to deal with it. Thank Him that in the Lord Jesus there is forgiveness. Ask Him for a tender heart. And if you've prayed that prayer once, then keep praying it every single day. Pray for the person who sinned against you, that you might be able to forgive them. This is a work of God in you. And pray for God's work in their hearts. You see, I, I really don't want this to be a burden, but instead a joyful gift of God, such that the grace He has poured into our lives ends up overflowing, such that it just becomes a natural part of us that we love as He first loved us. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the King who forgives. And we praise you for our debt that you have forgiven. Undeserving as we are, you came to us in our sin. You called on us to repent. And you paid the price in the Lord Jesus. Today, would you make each one of us members of your kingdom, able to be this sort of great. That love and mercy and compassion would flow out from us. Father, be especially with those who have been truly hurt, deeply, have been betrayed, perhaps a long time ago, but perhaps even now. Father, would you show them your love, that you are the compassionate Father who loves them. And Father, would you show them if they are sinning, that there would be no bitterness among us. And Father, we ask this, that we might reflect you to each other and to our world. We ask it in Jesus' name.